Please turn with me in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give, him, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, they have no rest day or night who worships the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked. And behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the, ripe from the, of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Last time, as we were 
discussing chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13, we saw how the beast and the false prophet win, at least for now. But, of course, that is a big exception. That is a big qualification to be made, that they win, or at least they have the appearance of winning for the moment. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. That is not the way Revelation ends with this reality of persecution, with the, the fact that in Revelation 13:7 it says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. That is not the way the story ends. And here we have a picture of the final victory. Now, there are, are both pictures of... Uh, we've seen already some points of this final victory, and there's many ways of describing it. But here in chapter 14, we have one picture of this victory. And the essence of that victory is that there are the 144,000 standing with the Lamb. Well, in some ways, we can understand chapter 14 as a fulfillment of the mission that was given to the angels and the mission given to the church uh, in chapter 7 to seal the 144,000. The angels who are prepared to destroy the whole earth are told to wait and hold back for a little while longer until the 144,000 redeemed, those whom the Lord would put his spirit, are sealed. And this is the result of that. Now, in between those two things, we have all the opposition of, of Satan, of the Antichrist, of the false prophet, of the world, the flesh, and the devil, all the things that they can possibly throw at the people of God, that's what they're doing. There is no device, there is no machination, there is no deception that is not being employed to destroy this work, to thwart this sealing of the 144,000. And we said that if even one of them were missing at the end, then that means that Satan has won. But what we have here is the plain fact that all those 144,000 have the Father's name written on their forehead. It's worked. They really were sealed. And there they are standing with the Lamb. Well, we, that is, I think, the big picture here. But perhaps this chapter, at least the first half of it, seems to be talking about the characteristic sin of these people. We know who they are. We have some idea of how they got there. They got there because they're, they've been sealed. But maybe we should look a little bit closer at their characteristics. So this morning's sermon is about the characteristics of the redeemed. And I have these five, indeed, characteristics that seem to be noted here. The redeemed have their father's name. The redeemed sing a new song. The redeemed follow the lamb. The redeemed are without fault. The redeemed hear the gospel. And just to briefly say that they have their father's name. That's the first thing that is mentioned. And secondly, they sing a new song. That is the great thing about the redeemed. It's a great privilege of the people of God that they sing this song of the redeemed that no one else is really able to sing. And third, they follow the Lamb. One way you can be sure if you're looking at a Christian is whether they follow the Lamb. And that's the wonderful thing here is that they're with this Lamb and they're following him wherever he goes. Fourth, they're without fault. Now that's going to be a little bit more difficult to explain, but we can be sure that ultimately these people, like Christ himself, are without 
fault or blemish. And fifthly, the redeemed hear the gospel. I believe that's how they got there in the first place. And we have that explained in the latter part of our section in verses 6 and 7. So these characteristics of the redeemed, these five things that characterize the redeemed people of God. First point then, the redeemed have their father's name. As it says in verse 1, And I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. We ask, and we mentioned, who are these people? These people are the ones mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, so we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Notice, of course, that back then we didn't even notice that little detail that they were sealed on their foreheads. But here we have the significance of that. They have on their foreheads the name of their father written, the name of Christ's father written on their foreheads. What does that mean? Well, of course, names are extremely significant in the Bible, names of all sorts, far more significant than we, than we in our days seem to give to names. But, of course, of all those names, most importantly is the name of the Lord. In Isaiah, 20, or Isaiah 30, verse 27, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue like a devouring fire. His lips... That's really part of the text there. It's not just added in. Uh, we're speaking of the name of the Lord, and now we're using a personal possessive of it as, as if it was a person. Well, the name of the Lord is a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see throughout Scripture that God's name has all of his characteristics. God's name is his public manifestation, so to speak. The name of the Lord is powerful. The name of the Lord is holy. The name of the Lord. And so it is with the Son of God the perfect image of the Father. He is the public manifestation of all that the invisible Father is. And so he is the name of the Lord. And that's why his burden is heavy. That's why his lips are full of indignation, his tongue like a devouring fire. What does that sound like? It sort of sounds like the picture we have of Christ at the beginning of Revelation, this holy Son of God. Well, this is the name that they have. It is Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's the coming together of these two things. We, we spoke in Revelation chapter 7 of how they are sealed. By what instrument are these sealed? What is the thing by which they're going to seal them? Did they have a, a stamp in their hand? Did they have some sort of uh, uh, old-style wax sealing thing? No, they have the Spirit of God. These angels, and particularly the church, as is given the job to proclaim the everlasting gospel to all peoples, tribes, and tongues, the thing that seals them ultimately is the Spirit of God. But this Spirit is not an empty, uh, this, this seal is not an empty sealing. It's, it's not a seal without signification, without substance. The real substance of it is Christ. Because that's the thing about being a Christian. It's not just a name. You really do have Christ in you. If you are Christ, the Lord has said that he's going to be with you. He's never going to forsake you. He's going to indwell you, in fact, he says. I'm going to come make my home among you. 
Those who put their faith in Christ are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. And by that Spirit of Christ, Christ actually dwells in us. And so when we look at these 144,000, the first thing we need to know is that they have been sealed because they have Christ in them, you see. They have their Father's name, the Son of God, in their foreheads. Well, that's what it says, I think, in Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. We take on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just because of some empty uh, tradition of being called Christians, but because we actually have Christ within us. Now, I've mentioned this briefly in the, the introduction, but I think we need to dwell on this the fact that there are 144,000 there. Because in between here, in between these two chapters, in between chapter 7, when the mission was given to seal those 144,000, and now we've seen a little bit of opposition. In fact, at some point, you'd imagine how on earth could this mission have ever succeeded. The woman is being persecuted. It says in, in chapter 12, the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the dragon, in verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Normally in a war, you expect casualties. Normally in a war, you're expecting some to fall. And then as it goes on in, verse thir- in uh, chapter 13, as we saw last time, this great beast... And he's terrible. But not only is he terrible, but he's deceptive. He looks like the real thing. And he's going to lead people astray. And you, you wonder, surely a few of those 144,000 are going, they're going to they just lose their head. And, and they're going to follow this beast. They're going to follow maybe the false prophet. I saw another beast in verse 11 coming out of the earth who had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. He looks just like Christ. He has a deadly wound, but his deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from heaven. And what does it say in verse 14? He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the the beast. He deceives them. And he causes all those small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. This mark of the beast. And so the whole world, the whole unbelieving world is given over to this and they receive this mark in various ways. You see, because they are being led not by the spirit of of Christ. They are being led by the spirit of Antichrist, by the spirit of the devil. Well, what we are told here is it does not matter what is thrown at the church. It does not matter what is thrown at God's people. Not one of them is going to be lost. Not a single one. Means that Christ, you see, is a winner. He prevails. As it says in John ten twenty seven, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And that includes Satan. And that includes the, the Antichrist. And that includes a false prophet. The world, the flesh, and the devil, he is more powerful than all those put together. And no one is able to snatch him out of my hand. No one. And so when we come here to Revelation 14, and we look at that number, it does not say 143,999. It says 144,000. Every last one of them are there. Not one of them have been lost. We see that they are with a lamb on Mount Zion. They are not in some limbo situation. Though they have been persecuted, though they have been attacked, where they are pictured is a place of perfect security and salvation. And mainly, the one that they are pictured with is Christ himself. Satan ultimately hasn't been uh, able to separate them from the Lamb. And though they themselves are so apt to go astray, ultimately the place where they are pictured and found is nowhere lost, nowhere in, at some separation, at some great distance from Christ, but there together on Mount Zion, a place of refuge and of strength, a place where the redeemed are. And that should remind us, that should fill us with comfort and with hope that no matter how difficult, no matter how much persecution, no matter how much temptation, ultimately those who are in Christ, those who have his spirit, those who have put their faith in the saving gospel, they will be found not separated, but completely at home with the Lord on his great mountain. Well, that's the first characteristic of the saints, the redeemed, they have their Father's name. They have the name of Christ by which they've been sealed. And secondly, the redeemed, they sing a new song. It says in verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpers playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. Now, we mentioned last time, the beast always wants to put on a show. There's always something on for the, new, for the young people at the, the anti-Christian church, believe it or not. They always have some sort of show, some sort of uh, great thing being put on. But the beast is putting on a show for his people to enslave them. And no doubt that some of the people that he's enslaved are all too happy to sing along at the beast's concert. But one thing that the beast doesn't get, one thing the beast is never going to hear, is the song of the redeemed. See, we're his people, enslaved by him, kept under his hand in darkness. It only works through deception, you see. And if he ever reveals himself completely to them, then the deception, it, it falls away. He, he's trying to be something that he isn't. And so even if he's receiving the worship of people as if he were Christ, that's what he wants, isn't it? He wants to rule over the church. He wants people to think that he is like Christ, like the Most High. He wants to be like the Most High. But it's never quite genuine, is it? It's a deceived people, half-heartedly singing along at the concert of the beast. But we have something different on Mount Zion. The saints are singing a new song to their Savior. Because they love him. Because they've been set free. 
they've been enabled to do something that they could never have otherwise have done. You see, if we ask the question why it is that only they can sing it, there's two reasons for it, isn't it? Because, first of all, they're given the spiritual ability to do what they could never have done before. Those who are at enmity with God. Those who could not understand even the gospel. They have been given a new heart. They have been redeemed. And they have been regenerated. And therefore, they are able to open their mouths and praise to do the thing that they've been created to do. We have all been created to worship the one true and living God. But in our sin, we have fallen from that. In our sin, we hate God. And we are deceived by the beast. And we are led astray by Satan. And we worship false things. But now we've been given the ability and regeneration and the new birth to finally do what we're really supposed to do. And moreover, we have a reason to do it. We have the ability and we also have the reason. We have the motivation to do it. You see, true worship is not something that you just kind of uh, force or cajole. I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, require of our children, for instance, that they worship with us. I don't mean that. I think sometimes we all need various encouragement. But I'm saying that true spiritual worship is something that needs no external compulsion. Is it summoned up in the heart of those who love their Savior, those who have been set free. And they can't wait to praise God. You know, when they, the people outside, they have, in their deception, whatever distraction they, they are under, they only have things truly to mourn. If they really knew the truth, they would mourn. They would recognize the severity of their situation, and they'd have nothing to sing about, nothing to praise about. But we, the more that we know the truth, the more that we have to sing about. The more that we are told about our redemption, the more that we are told about our great Savior and just how wonderful He is, the more we have to sing about. You know, that's in contrast with all the false workspace religions in the whole world. Every last one of them. Biblical Christianity is the only one where it is salvation truly by grace alone. Every last one of them has some sort of works in there. And you, because it works, you never quite know. You never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've done enough rituals. You never know if you've done enough good works in order to be saved. How can you possibly sing this song of being ultimately and finally redeemed? Because you don't know. Islam, they don't sing the song of the redeemed. They can't. No form of false Christianity. Nothing. Only true biblical Christianity where the gospel of free grace is being proclaimed and people believe it, only they are able to sing this song because they can say, yes, I have been redeemed. I do not hope, maybe, possibly, but I've been washed in the blood of Christ. I've been set free. And therefore we sing this new song. What's new about it, by the way? What's new about it? It's not that every, every month we have to come up with a new song to sing physically. What's new about it is because we are new. What's new about it is what God has done for us. What's new about it is this motivation. And that is new, by the way. That grows month by month and day by day and year by year on into eternity. That grows. We have more and more to sing about. Because we know more about our Savior. Well, third... The redeemed follow the Lamb. 
The redeemed have their father's name. They sing a new song and they follow the lamb. As it says in verse 4, these are the ones who are not defiled with women for they are virgins. They are ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, first of all, we just have to work through this symbolic language. What does it mean, the ones who are not defiled with women? Well, just merely defiled, it couldn't mean that they're not sinners because we know that Christ came to save sinners. We know that all have sinned and fallen short. There's no exception to that whatsoever. So how could you possibly have anyone who's not defiled? They don't exist. So that's surely not the case. Not defiled with women, that means you've got just a bunch of men, unmarried men. But we know that's impossible because we've already seen that this number stands for all the people of God. And that certainly includes women. And it certainly includes married men. But what then are we talking about? When Revelation is speaking about defilement, when Revelation is talking about particular bad women or a bad woman, what is it talking about? It's not talking about physical marriage. It's talking about spiritual adultery. Okay, now that's very, that's not just in Revelation, it's set forth throughout all of Scripture. The great thing is spiritual adultery. Of course, physical adultery is extremely serious, but the larger category of what we're talking about is spiritual adultery. And that's seen not only in Old Testament Israel, but also in, as mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Okay, that is what we are all. Married and unmarried, and all, and all the rest, we have been betrothed to Christ. And we are to be presented as a chaste virgin. What does that mean? It means that we should not be going after other spiritual husbands. We should not prostitute ourselves with the, the whore of Babylon and all the rest of these pictures that are given. Because there are many other alternatives that Satan and the Antichrist and so forth are, are saying. And they're all displaying their wares. And they're calling out to us as we go in the marketplace. And they're saying, come, taste of my things. Come see the show that I've got. And do the things that are okay to do in my church. But no, we're to be as a chaste virgin to Christ, not defiled with the whore of Babylon, not defiled with false religions and idols. You know, that's a very present threat, isn't it? What is the threat that we have uh, manifested in these letters to Revelation, in the letters to the seven churches? It's spiritual adultery. The pagan world around them is trying to squish them, trying to mold them into their shape. And it says, for instance, in, verse, uh, in Revelation 3, 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, who have not defiled themselves, what? With pagan idolatry roundabout, who have not made a compromise with the world. This is the whole thing. This is the, the whole idea. This beast who's uh, with the, his, the mark of the beast, and you can't, you can't uh, buy or sell. Things are going to be tough for you if you don't receive the mark of the beast. And likewise, if you didn't do the, the uh, imperial cult, if you didn't do some sort of outward obedience to these pagan festivals, life was going to be tough. You couldn't maybe be a part of the, the trade guild and you couldn't um, ordinarily buy things. Maybe all the meat in the market was completely defiled of being the output of these idolatrous practices. But the point is, these 144,000 are undefiled. That's the thing. They are spiritually faithful to Christ in the midst of all these threats and in the midst of all these 
temptations, they are faithful to their husband Christ. Well, it says beyond the fact that they are undefiled, they are faithful to Christ, that they also they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They haven't gone astray to other husbands. They follow him, and they follow him wherever he goes. We are thinking, aren't we, about the characteristic of saints. And as we go down this list of what does it look like to be one of the redeemed, what are, what, what are the characteristics? We have to say that these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's an identifying mark. I think that's often overlooked as we consider our relationship to the law, to good works, to obedience. We get caught up on, well, we're earning our salvation. It's works. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that. We're talking about identifying marks. And one of the identifying marks of a true Christian is that he follows the Lamb. Not perfectly. We know that the nature of sheep, and, and certainly we as Christians, is that we go astray is that there are moments, there are lapses. We know this. But the overall characteristic is that you're going to find these lambs, these, these people, these sheep, are going to be somewhere around about Christ. They're going to be following him. They're going to be in the company of the other sheep. They're, they're not going to be off on their own doing their own thing. That's not going to be an abiding characteristic of them. Why? Because they want to be with Christ, you see. It's not merely, if you want to be where Christ is, you have to be obedient to him. You have to follow him. If you want to, he's not going to be in the places of sin and of spiritual adultery. He's not going to be in those market stalls. He's going to be in the green pasture. And if you want to be with him, then you're going to be obedient in these things. And the thing about the true saint is he wants to be with Christ. And the moments of which he tastes what the world has to offer, of what he falls in his own flesh, it, that's, it's, it's ultimately bitter. It's something that, in the end, is not attractive. And he realizes he's just been tricked momentarily by Satan, and he immediately wants to be with Christ, you see, because the redeemed love him and want to be around him. They follow the Lamb. And when it says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, I think it's in two senses. First of all, with regard to his word, we're not selective about it. Isn't that the case? With every false form of, of Christianity, every false twist of theology is to be selective. You will do this, that, and that, and the other. But this, well, that was just the historical context at the time, and it doesn't apply to us now. We'll do this part, we'll do the New Testament, but you know the Old Testament, that really doesn't apply to us anymore. We'll do nine out of ten commandments, but that tenth, well, it just doesn't apply to us anymore. You know, the characteristic of the sheep of God is they follow him wherever he goes, wherever he leads, whatever the whole counsel of God, that's what they want. No exceptions, no smorgasbord approach to Christianity. It's the whole thing, wherever he goes. And furthermore, it's in the sense of the possibility of persecution. It's not just that we, we follow him in the sense of all of his word, that we want the whole counsel of God. It's also that wherever he leads us personally, we're going to go. Because it's very possible that it might be leading us into persecution. That's very much the situation of Revelation. It's very much the situation of the New Testament church. That it just might happen. In fact, it's entirely likely, it's almost inevitable 
that he's following us to a place where we're going to be persecuted, in a place which we would not choose on our own. But he's going there, and we have to follow him. That's the thing about sheep. We're going to follow our shepherd. So they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Fourthly, redeemed or without fault. It says in the other part of verse 4, they were redeemed from among men, being first fruits of God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, I just mind to add, we've been talking about already, if it's not a tautology, that the redeemed are the redeemed. If we're looking at the characteristic of what the redeemed are, we're just using that as, as a name to designate the people of God. Remember, they are redeemed. They have been bought with a price, a heavy price. They had this great debt of sin, and it has been paid by someone, paid by Christ at the cost of his own precious blood. And there are first fruits of God, and Lord willing, we'll speak more on this subject uh, tonight in, in Deuteronomy. But mainly, we see that in their mouth was found no deceit. Now, that's just another way of saying what we had in the previous point. That they're not defiled with Babylon because the great characteristic of all anti-Christian religion is deceit. And it is deceit that is both received, that's what, what trapped them in the first place, and then it is the deceitfulness and lies which they then become the carriers of. Okay? Uh, Satan doesn't use, typically, his own mouth. He has others that follow him to be his mouth in this world. And therefore, deceit is found on the mouths of all those who don't follow the Lamb. They have been ensnared by some false lie, some lie of Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're in their, their grasp. And now those lies, those deceits, are now found on their lips. But that is not the case with the people of God, the redeemed. Their deceit, the deceit of Babylon, the deceit of the Antichrist, not found on their lips. You know, uh, Revelation 20, verses 7 to 8 says, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth. Again, that is the nature of what he's doing. We are neither trapped by that deceit, nor do we become the carriers of that false religion. And more importantly, most importantly, they're without fault before the throne of God. Now, that's the amazing thing. That's the complex thing that I said we're probably going to have to say a little bit more of because how is it that they are faultless? How is it that they are without fault? Well, it's not that they're inherently faultless, not that they themselves are not sinners. They are without fault before the throne of God. It's in relation to God. In his eyes, they have been justified. Because the imputed, the, the righteousness of Christ, as they put their faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to them. And they put on, remember the robe, that's the other big theme. How many times have we seen that in Revelation? They put on this robe of someone else's righteousness. Somewhere it has a tag on it. It doesn't belong to them. It says Jesus Christ on it. Yet they get to wear it. And before the throne of God, they are faultless. It's not a blemish on them. By the way, that is the very same word that is used to translate in the old. Is in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint, 
and that idea of being without blemish, without fault, that is the same word used for all the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament. It has to be a lamb without blemish, without fault, over and over and over again, without blemish. Christ himself, 1 Peter 1.19, with the precious blood of Christ, as with a lamb without blemish. That's the very same word that's being used here, that they are without blemish, without fault. It's not just that they're without serious sin. Again, that's, a, a, that's a, 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 the wrong teaching of a, a false form of Christianity, that as long as you're without mortal sin, then you'll be okay. Well, no, that's not it. We're without any sin, without the slightest blemish. The same description that is used for Christ himself, the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, that is the same description that is used for us, the redeemed. And it has to be. It has to be. If we had any blemish, we would not be welcome in heaven at all. We'd be cast out. But we have been given, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have been given exactly what he has our sin has been taken away, and his righteousness has been given to us, and so we are without blemish. As it says in Ephesians, on two occasions, Ephesians 1.4, just as you chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, without blemish. Or in Ephesians 5.27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is not just a sort of uh, ambition that may or may not happen. This is absolute reality. That church, the people of God, are going to be without blemish before him in love. I would say just before we finish this fourth point, you know, one of my favorite benedictions is from Jude 124. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you Faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Well, that's the same word. Faultless, without blemish. And that's the great thing about redemption. It is not merely that we are saved as half-alive, half-eaten sheep, full of bruises and blemishes and dirt. It is that we are saved as perfect, without blemish, being presented as this great gift and treasure, in the end, without the slightest blemish. That's a characteristic of the redeemed. And fifthly and finally, the redeemed here of the gospel. So we have in verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, I may mention just a little bit more of this in the application, but I just want to point out here just a little bit of the connection here. What is the connection? Actually, in my Bible, to be honest, this is as a, a little separate section, but I, I'm not so sure. Because remember, what we have is sort of the fulfillment of what was given back in Revelation chapter 7. And if we're talking about these redeemed, how did they get there? How did that happen? This is a recapitulation of how it happened. The angel, perhaps representing the church as a whole, has gone out through all the earth. And this everlasting gospel has been proclaimed. And it is because that they have put their faith in this gospel. They believe the good news that has been given to them. Therefore, they are redeemed. That's another great characteristic of the redeemed. The redeemed believe the gospel that they have been They've been told. You want to, that's how we say it. If we want to define who's a Christian, 
We asked them, do you believe this gospel? Because the redeemed have been saved because of it. I'd also just say that this is a, in verse 7, this provides a further rationale for their singing. It says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This is part of the everlasting gospel that is being preached. Its implication is that all people ought to worship the one true and living God. And every time that we hear the gospel, we are then loaded again with reason to worship him. Well, they're obedient to the voice of this gospel. They are worshiping him. They are worshiping the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, because they've heard that gospel. That's a characteristic of them. And so it is that you find them singing, worshiping the Lamb. The redeemed hear the gospel. Now, the obvious implication for this is to hear the everlasting gospel, to believe it. Because you know the voice of the gospel is being heard today. The, the church in Western Europe seems to be in a period of decline, but that does not mean that the voice of the gospel is not being heard today. Even though the din of the Antichrist is getting louder, it seems, and there's this the siren song of the, the world is ever being uh, sharpened and and perfectly attuned to the times, you know, to, to make it all the more appealing that we should go astray to other things. But the voice of the gospel is yet being heard. And I don't have a new gospel to tell you. I have an everlasting gospel. And that's the beautiful thing about it is that, that we don't have to change with the times. Changing with the times is exactly what Satan wants us to do. That's the whole point of anti-Christian religion, to get us to change with the times. The nature of this gospel is that it is everlasting. It is for all people. Notice that this did not have to be contextualized for every time and, tri and tribe and, and nation and tongue. It is one gospel that has been proclaimed throughout the entire earth. These aren't different kinds of gospels, just one. It doesn't change over time, it remains the same. That's the gospel that we have, and praise God... You see, we, if, if that wasn't the case, I would at least wonder. I don't know about you, but I would at least wonder whether I've got the right one. I would at least wonder if this is, in fact, one of the characteristics of the redeemed, that they have believed the everlasting gospel. And yet I put my faith into some contextualized gospel that is custom made just for this time and this place and this particular culture. How do you know if you're really going to be among that number? Because it doesn't bear always all that much resemblance to this everlasting gospel. Well, what is it? This everlasting gospel. It's the Son of God came. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, died for our sins. He didn't die as an accident. He didn't die as a show. He wasn't putting on a show. He died having taken upon himself our sins and the wrath of God he paid for those sins and he did not stay in the grave and that is a thing that fills us with constant amazement our, any one of our sins enough to swamp someone for eternity in hell any one of our sins 
If you were to, if I were to live half as many years as I've lived now, those sins would be more than enough to send me to hell for eternity. And half again, and half again, more than enough to swamp any one of us for all of eternity. Christ had all the elect, those 144,000 which we know stand for a great many more than that, a number which no one could number of every nation, tribe, and tongue on earth. All of those sins laid upon him, and they, that didn't swamp him. He paid for those sins in, in total, and then on the third day he rose again. That's the good news. That's the everlasting gospel. And if you put your faith in that, then you're saved, because salvation is by faith. As it's summarized in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's, there's no work involved. It's all by grace. Well, that's the everlasting gospel to be heard, to be believed in. And that's what's going to make you into one of these redeemed a reminder, secondly, that we are sealed with the Spirit. Because I, I hope that we don't have to labor under complete uncertainty whether we're one of these number or not. I hope that we're not sitting here having no idea whether we're one of these redeemed people or not. Because that is not the design of God. He, there's a seal on the forehead. Speaking of this sealing by the Holy Spirit... And this sealing by the Holy Spirit, it may be physically invisible, but it is manifest to ourselves and in some ways to others. Not infallibly, not inevitably, we know from the confession and the catechisms that not everyone has perfect assurance in all, in every, every place and every time. But what it says in 2 Corinthians 1 is, He who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us as God, who has also sealed us and given us a spirit in our heart as a guarantee. And if that didn't mean anything, then it wouldn't be in the Bible. If that meant nothing whatsoever, if there's no point in us being told about this seal in our spirit, how would we know? Well, obviously the point is, you ought to know. Because of what it says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If the Spirit of the living God indwells you, there's going to be some understanding of that, some recognition in your spirit that you understand that God has sealed you with his spirit. And of course, it's, there's manifestation. It is the Holy Spirit. That's the thing about the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. And whether you like it or not, whether you would otherwise do so or not, slowly but surely over time, you become a little bit more holy. And if you're living and talking just like the world around you, then you probably don't have that Holy Spirit. Again, it's not about perfection. It's not about earning your salvation. This is just an evidence. This is just the mark. This is just the seal that we are given to some extent so that God's people can recognize one another, never perfectly, but mainly so that we ourselves might have the assurance that we really are the children of God. Well, thirdly, we should sing that new song in worship. I was uh, recently at a local sixth form, and uh, the young people there were not all singing in the act of worship. In fact, very, very few of them were. And I must admit, I was mightily annoyed at that 
But yet, even still, though in their rebellion and their sin, of which they should rightly be held accountable for in one way or another, yet there was something poignant about that. Because you could look out and you could see that the few who were singing probably were redeemed. They probably were. In all likelihood, in this situation of this heavy, heavy peer pressure, even in a, a school with a thoroughgoing Christian ethos, not to sing, those who were singing probably had a reason for doing it. Well, if they can do it, we can do it. And if you are the redeemed of God, you ought to sing that new song. We're going to sing no matter what. Because we have been given that reason. We have been given the ability. We've been given that love for Christ. And we're going to sing the new song. And praise God we have the opportunity to do that Lord's Day by Lord's Day. So let's do it. And fourthly and finally, I must remind us that the Lord's Supper is for the redeemed. There's this wonderful reality that only the, only the redeemed can really sing this song. Well, only the redeemed can truly in faith receive this Lord's Supper. It is, what does the Lord's Supper do? Well, for one thing, it identifies yourself with Christ and his people. You're, in essence, taking the mark. You're not taking the mark of the beast on you. You're taking the mark of the, the living God upon you when you receive this Lord's Supper. That is the, the only physical mark, the sacraments, that he has. There's no point in writing on yourself with a pen. The, 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 the mark that you have physically is in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. And it's therefore to identify yourself. It is a visible sign. You take the name of God upon your forehead in this way. When you take the sign and seal of his body and blood to your mouth. And therefore it is only for the redeemed, only for those who have believed the everlasting gospel. And so when I fence the table and when I explain these things, we must understand it is for those who have put their faith in Christ. Well, to this we now turn.